Hey, what's up? My name is Chris Ryan. I'm Jason Concepcion. And this is the podcast version of The Flat Circle, our True Detective After Show. You can watch the video version on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We're going to be putting up episodes after every episode of True Detective on HBO. Let's get into the podcast. What's up, Chris Ryan, Jason Concepcion. Hello. We are here to talk about episode two, season three, True Detective. The episode is called Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. It's also the name of a James Cagney movie. No, you're doing it wrong. You know, we just saw episode one. We got introduced to the case of the missing Purcell children. That's Will right. Purcell found dead at Devil's Den State Park in Arkansas outside right. of Fayetteville. Julie Purcell missing, and then her fingerprints pop on a pharmacy robbery in Oklahoma in 1990. Part of the robbery crew just out shopping for diapers and stuff? Unknown. Or something more nefarious. You know, we're talking about three different timelines, right. a huge cast of characters. And we're gonna try and break down the case of True Detective by asking the simple questions. Who, what, when, where, why? So let's break down episode two really briefly about yep. the what. The usual suspects are interviewed. Hayes and West talk to Woodard, a trash man and a Vietnam veteran. And we get a little bit of insight into the bond shared by Hayes and Woodard in terms of them being returning Vietnam vets. Right. Uh, West was in Motorpool, so I don't know if he really He's, yeah. didn't really see the shit over there if he was in Motorpool. <laughs> it was not uh, in the shit, as they say. And you know, it's really interesting because Woodard says something to to uh, Hayes that I think is really yeah. really interesting, which is, "You ever been someplace you couldn't leave?" Yeah. And he's talking about Vietnam, but in a lot of ways, I think that's thematically like a good way to look at. A lot of these characters. A lot of these characters feel trapped in between two places. That's right. Their circumstances have just drastically changed coming from Vietnam, coming back home. One of the things that Woodard says is, uh, I miss it when the only thing I had to think about all day was don't get killed. Yeah, that kind of primal existence. And we'll Hayes, talk- Hayes says like, it's just hard to unplug from that. Yeah, we'll talk about the Vietnam stuff in a bit. The cops also talked to Lucy Purcell's brother, mm-hmm. who had been living with the family for a little while. He suggests there had been some domestic trouble between Tom and Lucy. He didn't need a uh, family therapy degree to see that that's the case. <laughs> Tom's parents <laughs> think that Julie might not be Tom's daughter, yeah. that Lucy may have been with another man while Tom was working on uh, an oil rig somewhere. In Tom's Canada. mom couldn't, couldn't wait to let that one loose, yeah, by that the way. One, that, was a, that was a tough beat for a funeral. <laughs> Uh, Hayes and West uh, find out that Julie Purcell uh, may have received the doll on Halloween That's night. Right. So if the murder or the disappearance takes place in early November, several like a couple days before that, the kids go out for Halloween. She receives these bride dolls, these faceless bride yeah. dolls. We'll find out more about those. A task force is formed with the FBI. And in 1980, Amelia and Hayes become closer, and we find out that Amelia has the ability to create new identities for herself. Now, this is not actually that weird for that time period, and right. we'll go into that, but she went out to the West, she went out to the Haight-Ashbury, to San Francisco. She was involved, involved in fringe in, panther yeah, activities. politics, and then she comes back to Arkansas and becomes a teacher. West talks to a vice contact in the porn business, Oof. who leads <laughs> the detectives to a person of interest named, well, it goes by two names, Robert Abair or Ted LaGrange, and he's an ex-com with a predilection for younger girls. Hayes and West beat him for information, and then at the end of the episode, a kind of ransom note. Well, not even a ransom note, because it's not asking for anything. It's not asking, just, it's basically asking, uh, hey, stop looking. Yeah. Stop looking for these kids. This note is sent claiming that Julia's alive and okay. In 1990, in the 1990 timeline, Amelia's book is about to be published. She's gotten galleys, but Hayes has just found out that Julie's still alive, which I think might have an impact on they may have to do a little bit of a, a postscript for the book. 
And in 2015, Lisa from True Criminal tells Wayne about other pedophile rings in America. We'll talk about those. Bum, bum, bum. And we start to see the estrangement between Wayne and his children. We hear about a daughter who's not there, yeah. who he hasn't seen since Amelia's funeral. Something else going on there, clearly, because and his son, his gets son very upset. seems really stressed out by this yeah. whole situation. I think in the first episode, kind of led to believe that maybe the son is orchestrating this television mm-hmm. interview, but now it's a little bit unclear. Okay, so that's the what. We're also getting these this kind of feeling of this is when the case starts to crack apart. Mm-hmm. This is when uh, they have that meeting with the uh, with the federal members of the task force and the state uh, investigators, the state lawyers, and there's just a lot of people pulling in a lot of different directions. Yeah. So how does this case go bad? That's one of the things that we're going to talk about here. Everything is connected. Yeah. I mean, I think you just start to see that politics start to get involved in the case when that guy is briefing the town hall. Yep. And you can start to see the aggressive nature with which the citizenry is starting to say, like, hey. The, like, the panic is starting already. We don't want junkies and homeless yeah. people in our parks. What about the trash man? You know, he seems sketchy. Right. There's certain starting to get like a really like defensive posture. And when that kind of thing happens, when fear and panic is starting to be stoked, you start to have to worry about your electoral. That's qualifications. Right. If you're running for elected office, you can run on fear, but you also have to like quell fear when it comes up. So you're starting to see some political maneuvering going on in the DA's office in uh, in West Finger, and you're also starting to see some territorial issues between the feds and the state police. And you're you're also starting to get an idea of how this case potentially impacted this town because when Wayne goes to the community center. In the 2015 timeline, it looks like this. It's like a burned out building. Burned out building. What, meanwhile, when he went, during, when the case was active in 1980, it was fresh and new. It was, it was a hub of the community, just like a community center would be. Now, those people are getting pretty uh, like agitated inside. Mm-hmm. So you've got the town, you've got a couple of different lawyers getting involved, different people from Attorney General's office, uh, Judd Kent, the assistant district attorney who would yep. eventually become the, uh, the DA. You've got Ted LaGrange, a.k.a. Robert Abare or Robert Abare, a.k.a. Robert Ted, Ted LaGrange. Yeah. This is a, it's a pretty common trope in crime shows and in crime films and in crime fiction to have suddenly, like, Very, hey, my guy from Vice happens to know about this dude who's perfect to be a murderer. Right. It's rarely this person. And I think that that also happened a little bit in True Detective Season 1 where you right. had some, like, just dead obvious, like, this guy's sketches hell. Well, he has a good alibi, it should be said. He works at a daycare center, which is... That's not sketchy at all. Not sketchy at all, but he was there until 8 p.m., according to his boss, who has no reason to lie and also does not suspect that this person that she knows is Robert Hebert, who is, in fact, Ted LaGrange, uh, has a one-inch-thick jacket involving minors. Right. And I think that what Robert slash Ted does, as much as anything, is he serves as a mechanism for us to see just how far these cops will go. Yeah, they're willing to go to lengths in order to close this case. Yeah. From their perspective, a kid's been murdered and a child is missing, presumably still alive. And Wayne especially is really feeling uh, the heat to find this kid Mm -hmm. when he suggests searching every house in town to the lawyers He's like, hey, you know, we got to find this kid. It's yeah. not about it's not about the conviction. It's about finding Julie alive. And it's not about you know they get basically a map that a child goes through and draws these X's on. Yeah. And when they when they suggest doing that, I think it probably makes the most sense in terms of solving the criminal case, mm-hmm. but would start a political wildfire that the elected officials would not be able to contain. So 
It's really interesting. This is a little bit of a slow-going episode in terms of just trying to find its way to these different suspects. Mm -hmm. But within the episode, we start to get so much interesting context around what was going on at the time. So, I think I want to start a little bit with the Vietnam stuff. Yeah, let's do, do, that. do that. No, let's do that. So, we find out in episode one that Wayne was a LARP. Right. Uh, like a long-range reconnaissance uh, soldier. Essentially, these guys worked in really, really small groups, if not by themselves, which is what I think Wayne does. And they were dropped into the jungle during the Vietnam War, and they basically brought the guerrilla tactics of the North Vietnamese Army to the North Vietnamese. It was uh, a guy named David Hackworth invented this kind of fighting for the Americans, and it was a really controversial way of using American soldiers mm -hmm. because traditionally you think of guys and they storm the beach at Normandy and they take it town by town and band of brothers and this is a much more solitary, a much more demanding. You're and, all alone for weeks. And I would say extra legal <laughs> sure, uh, way of doing things. These guys are just out on their own but it speaks so much to who Wayne was and you can see when Roland tells Woodard that that's what Wayne did. Yeah. Woodard's like, oh, oh man, he's he like, must have been man. nuts. Yeah. The trash man thinks the cop must have been nuts. <laughs> that should give you an idea of what kind of stuff Wayne did in Vietnam. But I'm most fascinated with this idea that by 1980, the war's been over for a few years. Yeah. And these guys are still trying to put it back together, man. Like in 19, in the 1940s, when people got back from World War II, you know what happened? They built the suburbs. There was, like, there was a huge economic boom That's in America. In the 70s, when guys came back from Vietnam, it was people a much tried to, story. People just tried to forget that it happened. Or they, you know, you know like initially, it, it was like spitting on them in public and it, stuff like that. The government didn't want to didn't want to rehash it. There was not going to be a celebration about it. There were not going to build statues. Yeah. Uh, although eventually the Vietnam War Memorial was built, but it was a an event that people didn't want to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And then you kind of see. This really cool thing happened with when Wayne and Amelia are talking at that yeah. bar. Uh, yeah, their, their, their interactions are really incredible. It's two episode. people kind of recovering from the 1970s. Yeah. You know, she said that she goes out to San Francisco at one point. Uh, she drops out of school and she goes out to San Francisco, gets involved with the Panthers, and that eventually kind of drops out of that scene and comes back to Arkansas. And yeah. That's a story I think you hear a lot in the 1970s is people still being part of that residual part of the 60s counterculture that was mm -hmm. existing in the 70s and then eventually tapping out and trying to get like a normal type life going. And they, they also have this really unspoken energy of being minorities in this majority yeah. white town where they can't even have a conversation together without uh, Roland being like, mentioning it later, the are you talking to the teacher? Yeah. Because it's so obvious that these people are outsiders within this town, that the, when they speak to each other, they just commiserate over the fact that they're outsiders. This is that great conversation between Roland and, and Wayne after the meeting with uh, the task force goes bad, where he's like, man, you should, why don't you back me up? Yeah. You know, they're not gonna listen to me when I say stuff. Like, you, even though I'm right. Even though yeah. I'm right, you have to say it because you're the one that they'll listen to. And he's like, what do you, do, what do you mean? He's like, you, you, you need to take care of your tribe, you know? Yeah. Like, you, take care of your shit. Yeah, and he's like, it, are, are you, you talking blue, about? are you black, are you white? And he's like, what do you mean my tribe? And he's like, I understand where I am in this place more than you could ever understand. And that's something that Amelia and and Wayne understand about each other without ever having to talk about it. It's definitely it. a connection. And yeah. then you also see, to Wayne's point, in 1990, in the 1990 timeline, and uh, Wayne is talking and they find out, he, we find out that Roland 
has done very well for himself. Now, we'll find out what that means, but what's really interesting is Wayne clearly has not. I mean, he's living a modest life. He's living an okay life, but he's not done so well for himself that you need to make an appointment to see him the way you do with with Roland. That's right. So we're going to find out more about that, but keep an eye on this idea of these guys coming back from Vietnam and trying to put together their lives again. Because I think that that's going to be a really really important part of the season. They would not have set this in 1980 for no reason at all. The other thing I really wanted to talk about a little bit is Halloween. Uh, and Halloween in 1980. And like, I, so this is, you know, just just this idea of Halloween back then and the kind of the way it is both the best of times and the worst of times. Man, I, so as a kid in the 80s, if your parents were worth their salt at all, they gave you the talk of, hey, uh, when you bring your candy home, we have to all go through it to make sure there's like no needles and razor blades and stuff in it, which is a thing if you if you really Google it and look at uh, contemporaneous news accounts of the time, was absolutely an urban legend that was out there. Yeah. People are poisoning and or stuffing uh, needles into uh, Snickers bars. Razor in your Snickers, yeah. Didn't really happen. Right. There's actually very little evidence that that occurred, but it's emblematic of the kind of word of mouth pre-internet, almost folkloric influence that just gossip had on your everyday life as a person. And, you know, it's it's this really crucial thing that we're going to keep coming back to over and over again is that 1980 is this turning of the page in American history. Now, I mean, like, it's not like there weren't problems in the 60s and 70s, but I think you start to see mass media start to capture it more and more in 1980. Is that... You know, and I think that this happened for us too, even as we were growing up in the 80s, where you grew up and you had this idea that your parents could send you out the door yeah. at like 10 a.m. and you could come back at dinner. Right, that's and it. And you didn't need any oversight. You didn't need, Nobody, they didn't need to know where you no were. No phone call. You were nothing. just riding your bikes. That's it. Doors were unlocked. People knew their neighbors. All this like mythological stuff about like right. the great American dream. This kind of like uh, E.T. the extraterrestrial existence where uh, five kids get on their bicycles, find an alien, and are just doing stuff for 14 exactly. hours a day. That's totally <laughs> wholesome and nothing bad can happen. Right. That was that was the promise yeah. of the suburbs at that time in the 1980s. And there was a certain amount of freedom that came with yeah. that. Like, I remember just being kind of sent out on a BMX bike at that at that age and just being like, doing some pretty dumb, dangerous stuff, like riding it on semi-highways and like riding it to places I didn't know how to get back from and just kind of like basically being like, I think my house is that way. Like that kind of like adventure is, it's pretty thrilling for a child, but you can also see like the the darkness that it leads to with Will and Julie Purcell. Now, the reason why I was bringing all this up is that obviously when we find out that Julie Purcell got these dolls on Halloween, at least according to another child, which is worth mentioning because, as you said before, children are not always the most reliable narrators. It lights a spark that just this spark of panic in this town and this idea that if you're going around and you're Xing out houses of good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy, yeah. that's how you start to breed paranoia and contempt for your neighbors. Uh, another thing about just being a kid at that time, you mentioned just being like out on your BMX doing stuff, is kids, it was easier in a sense to have a secret life or at least keep it completely separate from what your parents' awareness of what you were doing yeah. was. And I think you mentioned the dolls. I think that's something that uh, is going to be explored further. When they told their dad that they were going to see the kid's new puppy, yeah. they didn't go there. Right, they were lying. So they were lying about that. Who was Will playing Dungeons & Dragons with? Who did Julie get the dolls from? Right. There's like a secret person or group of people involved in their life that we 
don't know anything about that is going to be, at least as I think, that's going to be the focus going forward in terms of like who actually perpetrated this crime. Not yeah. the red herrings, not the person who, or people that ostensibly got uh, convicted of this. So we're still trying to find the why, right? right? Episode two, we don't necessarily have a concrete why. We're starting to get hints mm -hmm. of this town not being as, as easygoing and safe as maybe they had hoped. I mean, when we first start this season, these cops have like really nothing to do. They're just shooting. They're shooting animals in the junkyard. Yeah, and drinking beer and toasting <laughs> Steve McQueen's death. But by the end of episode two, we've got a map with names with red X's yeah. and not red X's. We've got somewhat of a suspect in the trunk of a car. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, some speculation about the parentage of one of the kids. And you're starting to get more and more accusations thrown around. And then when they go and see that daycare center lady, oh, yeah. and they tell her like, well, you know, you're not gonna be seeing that guy for a while. It's starting to, it, you see the little, the, the stability of the community start to crumble a little bit. Now, one of the things that we're gonna be doing this season on The Flat Circle is talking about some of the true crimes oh, that yeah. may have influenced Nick Pizzolatto in his writing of episode, season three. He is not playing possum about this. Like, he pretty much tells us- It's on our front there, street. Yeah. Front street. Obviously, you know, this is True Detective. Uh, there, it's it's pretty graphic stuff. But Elisa, the true criminal host, that's right, mentions one of these crimes. She says, "Have you heard of the Franklin scandal?" She's briefing uh, Wayne about, first of all, about the kind of like subculture of true crime f fans and blogs, and how a lot of theorizing goes on on sites like Reddit and uh, various forums. And he's like, "This is what people do now." And then. Um, she tells him about the Franklin scandal. Have you ever Who do you think of? knows more about the internet, Aaron Sorkin or Nick Pizzolatto? That's a great question. <laughs> I probably Pizzolatto. Aaron, I think Sorkin, he hates it too much. Yeah. And then she asks, she says, have you heard of the Franklin scandal? Now, the Franklin scandal is a, is a real thing. It began as a savings and loan failure and- It was a small credit union in Omaha. Right, in that- the late 80s, yeah. That, that cratered. And as, Federal investigators began to examine why it cratered allegations of satanic rituals and child abuse and drug trafficking, and drug trafficking that uh, touched on people like, I don't know, uh, George Bush, vice president and eventual president of the United States, various high-ranking members of the government. Did At the end of the day, there's actually no proof that any of this stuff happened, Witnesses but it was- Witnesses who alleged stuff recanted, they said that they were pressured, et cetera, yeah. And this, this harkens back to uh, the theme of season one, which is the, the malleability of memory and the way memory can, can shift when authority figures are telling a person, oh no, that, you know, like we've got five people that say you're in a satanic cult. And then all of a sudden, like when the, when the feds and you know the principal of the school and the uh, president of the bank are saying that to you. You begin to think, oh, what, have I repressed something? Maybe that did happen. Yeah, that's essentially what happened in the Franklin scandal, similar to the McMartin preschool case, which was the most ex at one time the most expensive uh, litigation in American history, with allegations of dozens of children abused and satanic rituals, babies like killed. When it all came down. There was no, almost no evidence yeah. that this any of this stuff occurred. So that is obviously something that they are going to tap into with the, with the the shot of the priest of the daycare center and just the mention of the Franklin scandal. This idea of these satanic cults with members 
that reach up into the highest reaches yeah. of the halls of power. Yeah, and then that, that that Franklin scandal thing was based on a guy, the guy who was running the savings and loan was a uh, prominent Republican. He sang yeah. the national anthem at the, like, I think the 1984 Republican National Convention. He was a rising star in the Republican Party. And there was all this crazy stuff surrounding him that wound up being disproven and that the, any of the, many of the witnesses recanted their statements. But when you combine that with modern media, yeah. you know, when you combine that with the burgeoning tabloid media of the 1980s and the power of television, it gets pretty, pretty hairy pretty fast. The reason why we're bringing all this up, though, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about how this may or may not connect to season one, which is one of the things that we're keeping our That's eye right. on, is that this was, in the first half of season one, a major talking point with Billy right. Lee Tuttle and this idea of these videos of pornographic videos, snuff movies, these kinds of things. Which we never actually find out about. Yeah. We never actually find out the source of these things. We, um, at the end of the, of the season, they catch ostensibly the killer. Mm -hmm. But we don't find out about any kind of wider conspiracy. Here, they're obviously going to touch on it because they're mentioning it flat out. I'm just fascinated to see which way they go with like, it. Like, is it something that gets disproven or is it something where he's like, no, all the pieces matter. It goes out into the farthest reaches of power. Right, or something else where it's something that Judd Kent, who becomes the state attorney general, uses to leverage himself up the ladder of power, uh, you know, essentially riding this wave of panic when there's actually no evidence. So there's just a lot of ways they can go with it. And I'm really fascinated to see what it is. You know, this is a show that that hints of conspiracies, that really like lays it out there, at least in front of your senses. You know, you sense these conspiracies, these concentric rings of, of wrongdoing that lurk just below the surface of what you can see. Uh, and I'm, I am fascinated to see if they really go there and are like, this was this kind of stuff happens. Yeah, it's, it's in, just in our world. it's in also our world. about the viral power of ideas and yeah. how ideas can infect one brain and then lots of different brains and then a community can lose its cool and also about how pursuing the truth of these ideas can drive people to break apart. Yeah. Mean, that's what we're seeing in 2015. You know, we're talking you talked a little bit about the decay of community with the image of the community center, but probably the most powerful image of the episode is the final one. Yeah. Where Wayne Hayes in 2015 finds himself on Shoe Pick Lane outside of the Purcell's house, and it's burned to the ground. It's it's just a, it's a, a remnant of what it used to be. And this this idea of a case going through three decades of time and just destroying all these lives yeah. that touch it, and then in some cases, as we're led to believe at least, with somebody like Roland or whatever, you know, people getting well off these cases, people using these cases as levers to become more powerful. And we still have so many unanswered questions. You know, we need to know more about this ransom note. Okay. We need to know more about, you know, what what Roland did to get better, like to get yeah. to get like a, a better life for himself off of this case. But there is one thing that I think we should talk about when it comes to this connection to season one. Oh yeah, and it's something that Elisa says to to Wayne, right? Okay, so. Elisa is explaining, again, in that scene where she's explaining uh, true crime subcultures on the internet. Uh, and she says, do you know about the Franklin scandal? It's been theorized that the straw dolls, um, which she tells him was great evidence found by him. It's been theorized that the straw do dolls are a sign of pedophile groups like the Crooked Spiral. Did a lot of searching on the internet to find out that's a reference to anything. I found Crooked Spire, which is kind of like an architectural 
detail from European churches. Obviously not the case. Uh, you and could the, describe the stairs going upstairs in the Devil's Den Observatory Tower as some sort of crooked stairway. But, but if we believe that this is the extended Nick Pizzolatti true detective universe, then could she be talking about this? The spiral design that was drawn on the back of Dora Lang and was seen in the area of numerous crimes and that Russ Cole uh, drew in his notebook and would go around asking people if they've uh, ever seen anything like this. Could Crooked Spiral be one of these cult groups that is kind of known about by the time the 2015 timeline runs around? I think yes. Yeah. I mean, this is happening. Like, there's no accident that this is set in 1990. Right. There's no accident that there's this geographic proximity, this chronological proximity to season one. That's right. The crimes are too similar. The themes are too similar. This isn't a supernatural story, but this is a connected story, I think. And I think that that's going to be the thing we most keep our eye on going forward. And we we talk a lot about uh, Pizzolatto's influences. Those early... Weird fiction, yeah, Lovecraft. weird horror, early whatever you want to call that uh, that genre of early fiction, they all used settings that each other had used. Yeah. They they harkened back to details they had and shared very, mythology. Carcosa, Carcosa was not any one author's creation. Right. It was a shared universe that they all inhabited and would call upon and use. I think Pizzolatto's doing this with himself, with yeah. his own stories right now. Yeah, I mean. The the thing that always occurs to me about True Detective is it's 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 kind of like the Robert Penn Warren poem where you're trying to like give something a name. You're trying to wrap your mind around just how unbelievable reality can be sometimes. Yeah. And we tell these stories and we create these narratives and some of them are true and some of them are fiction, but they're basically trying to give order to chaos. Yeah. And that's really like it, it Carcosa is like this chaotic vortex whether you think it's a real place or whether you think it's like a a metaphor for something. That's where these stories seem to emanate from. Yes, I mean, there's really something, in a sense, comforting about, strangely, ironically, comforting about the idea of um, these horrific acts that, in actuality, are perpetrated by everyday people that you know, family members, regular people, that in actu- that in th- in this fevered conspiracy, these acts are, are perpetrated by the powerful and by shadowy forces, dark forces. Yeah. It almost makes it uh, it makes it more comforting to believe that this is all a conspiracy perpetrated. Yeah, if on. you can't, if if you come across something inexplicable, yeah, you will take the most far fetched explanation. Yeah. You know, and the loss of a child is the most inexplicable thing somebody can probably face. Right. So that's going to keep coming up. Oh yeah, we're going to keep chasing the case wherever it goes. For Jason Concepcion, I'm Chris Ryan. We will be back with episode three as soon as it goes up. We should have Benny's out here standing up on that. <laughs>